Okay, I am here live with uh, Jay Warner Wallace, and we're going to be talking about the Jesus effect. At least that's what I'm calling it. Um, this is this is unknown stuff about Jesus that it seems it should be obvious. Like everybody should know this. So that's why I'm like, how do we miss this? How do we not see that Jesus's impact on history? See, the thing is, let me just preface it this way. We, we grow up, we hear about Jesus. It's Christmas time right now. So we're hearing all these stories about Jesus and we, we think um, we think we know. And it's like that keeps us from actually realizing what we're looking at. And so um, what we're going to do here is is allow uh, J. Warner Wallace to talk about his, his new book, Person of Interest, which I got right here. And some of the stuff that's in the book here, let me see so you guys can actually see it, that actually talks about um, uh, some lesser known ways that Jesus has radically shaped and changed the world we live in today. And I find this stuff exciting because I, I love Jesus. I <laughs> think Jesus is amazing, but none of us appreciates him enough. And so, uh, yeah, maybe you could just by way of introduction, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Jim, and, and your book. Yeah, I was somebody who was uh, missed a lot about Jesus. As a matter of fact, when we got saved, I was about 35. Susie was 33, my wife. And we had been together about 18 years. And... Uh, neither one of us, after we started going to church and realized, you know, we're interested in this person named Jesus of Nazareth, and this is before we were ever really even Christians, we were just kind of investigating it. Uh, we wondered, how is it we got that far along without anyone ever really, maybe the last three years, people I started inviting us to church, but growing up as a kid here in Southern California in Los Angeles County, I, I, I just, the kids I hung around with, the people I, I was, I bumped into, uh, you know, they, I just didn't have any sense that I was missing anything. Uh, the culture here was secular enough that I felt very comfortable as a non-believer, um, and so I never and I never associated Jesus as. In other words, it, he never stuck out to me as having any relevance to my life. He might be important to Christians the same way that Buddha is important to Buddhists, but okay, that's a very nichey thing, right? Like I'm not yeah. into comic books. My son isn't into comic books, but I'm not, so I don't really care what happens to the comic book characters. Right. So that's kind of how I saw him. He just that's, was that's, not... And you were atheist at the time, right? Oh, yeah. And I was the yeah. kind of uh, the kind of guy who was just uh, not I was not I don't want to say angry. That's a stupid expression. I think it's overused all the angry. Athe it wasn't that. It's just that I was um, impatient with any form of stupid. And when and yeah. work investigations, <laughs> you encounter a lot of stupid yeah. uh, people who don't want to cooperate, <laughs> people who are just lying to you for 30 years after they did something terrible. And I just kind of figured I don't need another level of stupid. And mm -hmm. when Christians would kind of even offer at work, so even say something about God, I was very happy to smack it down. Um, and I was, you know, before I became a Christian, I, I was pretty <laughs> profane and sarcastic and mm -hmm. and all the other stuff. Um, so I really, it was a transformational process for me, of course. Yeah. But back then I would have said, hey, don't even start your stupid conversations about Jesus because yeah. I'm not interested. And yeah. uh, by the way, and you're not really interested either, because if you were, you'd know how to defend this and you don't know how to defend this. You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so don't, don't bother. Don't waste my time. That was yeah. my view. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it, you'd probably shut down a lot of people with that kind of stuff. Well, only because, yeah. you know, we see a lot of this right now in the culture, right? This kind of open, uh, I mean, look, I, I, I do videos. I'm sure you're seeing that there's a reaction video for a lot of the videos we do out there from some atheist oh, yeah. who will beat you with a stick, you know, and make you look silly in his thumbnail and all that. Okay. That's fine. Um, but that's, that was a view that I think I held. Uh, I can see my own. I don't, I never get, um, I never, Complain about that kind of attitude when I see it because man, I, I I sure personified it for a number of years. So yeah, yeah. So okay, what I'm picking up is the idea that so in your mind Jesus is sort of previously reg, you know 
relegated to like Sunday school and sort of this religious hobby some people have that you just don't right. have any interest in. Um, but I think your your current book and the, the work you're do, you've done recently is saying even beyond that, there are like your world, your your personal life has been radically impacted and shaped by the life of Jesus, whether or not you have even been aware of it. And yeah. so it's 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 not a discussion of like Clark Kent and Superman and <laughs> Marvel characters and who's stronger, Thor or uh, uh, the Hulk or something like that. But rather yeah, this yeah. is this is like we're talking about areas of science and history and medicine and things like this that have been radically impacted by the life of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, as a matter of fact, all the stuff that I valued the most, because of my background before I became a police officer was I was in the arts. So I got a bachelor's degree in design, and then I got a master's in architecture, and I was working as an architect in Santa Monica. I was about 27 when I decided to change careers. Um, and so I ended up uh, following in the footsteps of my dad. But uh, the, the things that mattered to me um, in grad school would have been, you know, art, because I loved the arts. Uh, literature, because we love to read. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist, so I wanted to be an author uh, when I was in uh, undergraduate school, but I ended up in the, in the fine arts. Um, I would have said that um, probably music, because I was somebody who thought I would be in a, I thought I'd be another, you know, the next, next Eddie Van Halen, and you know all that stuff, and and uh, also I would have said education, because I spent most of my young life in it. I was, I was 27 when I finally got out of grad school. I worked the last three years of grad school uh, as an architect. Then, then I would have also said that science is important because I was part of that Star Trek first generation kind of world yeah. growing up. I mean, I remember watching the lunar landing and thinking, man, whatever questions we have, we are on the precipice of yeah. answering all of them. Um, and so I would have, you know, I think the more we actually dig into those things, the further we find ourselves. But, but still, I would have thought back then that these five things, art, literature, music, education, and science, for me as an atheist, were the things that made life worth living. It turns out, had no idea. I think we do that even in this, our country, right? We live in this country with all these benefits and all these blessings. We take them all for granted, the technology we take for granted. When there's people in the world who don't have any idea of the kind of experience we have of our freedoms or even of our, our uh, kind of lavish uh, extravagances. Um, and you just take it for granted after a while. Where does all that come from, right? Mm -hmm. um, the same thing here for me, as I had no idea of the impact of Jesus and his followers in any of those disciplines. Yeah. Well, l walk us through it. Like you, you know, this is uh, what my dad used to say. Uh, you got the talking part done. <laughs> like, yeah. Sort of, we got the, we made some claims. Um, and I, and I imagine there's going to be some skeptics and atheists that are going to sure. watch this and I'm glad you guys are here. And actually more often than not, I get along great with the skeptics of atheists when they're not, that's the, the minority of them that are calling me horrible names on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Other than yeah. that group. But um, but for, for those people, like, how could you establish without just say, oh, okay, you, you just believe it because you believe it because you believe it, that um, these unknown things about Jesus, uh, about his impact in, say, um, say, you know, art, for instance, what, what, what would you say is the testable impact of the life of Jesus in art? Well, part of it is, I want remember, everything we do when we talk about how much, like, who's the greatest football player of all time? If we say, who's the greatest of all quarterbacks, the GOAT? Well, people would say, is it Tom Brady? Well, then you're going to have arguments based on not just Tom, he's not in isolation in history of, of football. There's a ton of other quarterbacks who played the game. So the question is, why is it that Tom Brady, then, you would consider to be the GOAT when compared to the all the other quarterbacks? Something similar happens here, right? We're making a claim about Jesus. 
and his impact is really has to be measured against every other living human being, every other historical figure in the history of historical figures. Now, I realize there's a lot of skeptics who will say he's not a historical figure. We can argue that, but but I'll, okay, look at it this way. If, if there's another fictional character that you think has had the impact of Jesus of Nazareth, you just don't understand the impact that Jesus has had. There is no other fictional character who is at the bedrock of art, literature, music, education, and science, whose followers developed an entire worldview that changed the planet. There is no other uh, uh, fictional character who can make that claim. That's why it's reasonable to infer that Jesus is something other than a fictional character. If you cannot find a parallel, it may be because there isn't any. Right. Now, now, interestingly, uh, I'm comparing Jesus to other historical uh, figures. So when it comes to the arts, for example, the kind of impact Jesus had on the arts, uh, the question becomes, well, okay, I'm comparing him to every other historical figure who's ever lived. Mm -hmm. Tell me who's been painted, sculpted, crafted, etched, drawn, more than Jesus of Nazareth. To, and I looked at this, and I, I love art history, and most of my uh, books, now they're somewhere in the rafters because I, I'm moving different directions, but... But I used to love art history because, number one, all artists are always kind of being inspired by prior generations and kind of stealing from the ideas of the masters. Right. So we have to know what the ideas of the masters were before we can steal them. So, so I'm constantly looking at the masters. And, and in every single genre of art history, from antiquity all the way to Impressionism to Dadaism to pop, whatever you want to call, if you look at the masters in those genres, the top three, just – use a simple secular Google search. You are gonna find a list of the top three to five artists. Okay, take those, write that down. Search their catalogs of everything they've ever painted, etched, sculpted, drawn. Guess what you're gonna find in every single one, somewhere in there. If it's Andy Warhol, if it's, if it's, it's you know, it's uh, Salvador Dali, I don't, I don't care who it is, you are gonna find that they have uh, been inspired and either painted, sketched, sculpted, or crafted, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why is that? Well, is there any other historical figure who is in everyone's catalog? No. Hmm. They're not even a close second. What is it? And I don't care. These are not always people who are Christians. Yeah. But they find themselves doing something with the person of Jesus. The same is true in music, by the way. And you got a lot of folks who would write music about Jesus that's pretty profane. Yeah. So, you know, but he's in, and I'm not saying there's just one as a cuss word. I mean, they're actually calling him out as a historical figure and bellyaching about him in some way. Yeah. <laughs> or using yeah. him to mock somebody else. Like, like, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, uh, Frank Zappa, a song called, uh, uh, Jesus thinks you're a jerk. <laughs> That's one of my favorite <laughs> examples of all the kinds of songs that are out there. <laughs> but, but the point is that, that you, you can't, you're not going to find a parallel of any other historical figure. Yeah, that's not even the the, the least of it. It's that it's that the music that you love right now, if you're listening to us, and I don't care what genre it could be in, if it's techno or or rap or hip hop or country or whatever your thing is, it's K-pop, whatever it is. It turns out that it is standing on a history that was developed largely by Christ followers in a worldview that is musical from the get-go, right? You know, the, the, Jude the Jewish uh, um, faith was a musical faith. Davos wrote psalms. Uh, he wrote songs. And these, for example, we think that Jesus is even singing one of these at the end of the Lord's Supper. And then Paul tells us that you're to sing these spiritual songs and hymns. And then you have a rich tradition. Where else can you think about it in the West? Where people get up every weekend and sing on a stage in front of a live audience. <laughs> You're surprised that so many pop stars started their singing careers in the church. Mm -hmm. This is a singing worldview. 
and a singing tradition. And because right. it is early on, the development of hymns, the, moving from the way people used to sing in antiquity to harmonies, oh, Christian invention, minor scales, major scales, oh, oh, musical notation. Oh, there you go. You yeah. cannot turn a corner to get from there to here in which there wasn't a Christian either fashioning a, a an idea about music, mm-hmm. a strategy for how to execute the music, or creating the instruments that were going to be used in the music because these were being sung in the church or in front of the, the, the king or wherever it may have been. And then it slowly moves in the part of the tradition, uh, Christian tradition from these exclusive audiences of the religious to more secular and then you have, so if you, I went back to the catalog of all the 100 uh, top artists in the last 100 years on IMDb, on, on uh, you know, um, Rolling Stone, on uh, Billboard magazine. And if you look at the top uh, singers, all but two, and there's about 150 by the time you blend all these lists, wow. all but, I went to all their catalogs, all but two, and I've got a list of all the songs they've sung about Jesus. So it's not just that he's had huge impact you know, if you just look at the songs in the first 300 years of the Common Era, you can reconstruct, I mean, the story of Jesus's life, ministry, death and resurrection, much of the rich theology is available. I mean, there are still churches around the world that are singing. That. I've got a list of all those hymns in the first 300 years uh, in the book. I was amazed. I went through all the hymns then, uh, the most ancient hymns, and some of them are pretty ancient and bizarre. And I just mined out what's the data about Jesus you can get. I made a list of what you can know about Jesus from the earliest music. Mm-hmm. And you'll be amazed at what you can learn. So yeah. I think now we can say, well, this you're talking about Western art. You're talking about—no, actually, in the book, I've got an A to Z list of art globally. Here's something that I, I, is hidden in plain sight for a lot of people. What makes Jesus so accessible to artists is the freedom that we've had always to reimagine him and reinterpret him in our cultural context, mm-hmm. unlike other religious iconic figures. So if you're going to uh, paint Indra or Buddha, for example, you'll find that they're always depicted in a very, very similar way. Uh, so if I have a, an image or a statue of Buddha from, let's say, India, and I compare it to one in South America, you wouldn't know which which nation they came from because they're so similar. Hmm. Whereas Jesus, if he's painted in Africa, looks African. If he's painted in China, he looks Chinese because he is reinterpreted, reimagined as the savior for all, as the person who comes to the lost in their own cultural context, using their the kind of iconic uh, artistic styles of the region and even the ethnic appearance of the region. He's very malleable in that way, and that's why I think he has influenced globally more artists than any other historical figure. Yeah, yeah, and, and in his presence in art, I mean, this is just, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about it, and I'm going, his presence in art isn't like the presence of other things in art. I mean, so we see lots of things that are reproduced in art, sunsets and things like this, and animals, but um, but Jesus has all these, it's these iconic, powerful images um, of, of, of him embodying what he, what, what he stood for. Grace and holiness and love and power and I, I um and healing and, and taking care of others and the, yes well what's the, great the, you've seen yeah, the, you, you've seen the stations of the cross right in the Catholic Church right mm-hmm. which is one of the things I thought you know um uh, if you look at you know I don't want to get into the whole debate about the Catholic Church but what I'm saying is that that use of the stations of the cross is such an interesting 
concept for me because it reflects much of the kind of impact that Jesus had on on the history of art because what he what people are doing in those stations of the cross is simply depicting the moments in along the way to the crucifixion and resurrection of well, the crucifixion of Jesus right so so you have these it's 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 that the art of Jesus retells the story of Jesus so that you can know something of Jesus mm-hmm. and what he actually did so what I did is I went back, I said, let me see how, how, how much has been done. So if you take, I only use Mark because it's the shortest gospel. And I said, okay, so I look at the, all of Mark. Let's just break this into episodes. And I looked at Mark and I said, okay, so what are the episodes? This happens, then this happens. And I got, I think about 50 some odd episodes. Well, then I looked to see, well, what kind of art in early in history appears in which each of these episodes is depicted? Well, it turns out you can reconstruct the entire gospel of Mark, every gospel episode by episode, but you can do it in the earliest art history. Uh, and that's what's so amazing is that even you'd have to destroy, and one of the premises of the book is, hey, if I destroyed every New Testament gospel, has this man had the kind of impact that can be reconstructed? Like you can't erase them that easy. Then that's, that's by the way, I don't think there's a way to explain that. And here's my, my remember the old liar, lunatic, um, Lord kind of Trilemma from from C.S. Lewis. I, I think it's it's might have changed a little bit in how I'm trying to do this this book. I think you can make the case: is he fiction, just a regular guy who lived in the first century, or God of the universe who appears enters into his creation? If this those are the three options, I don't think you can argue. There's no other example, like I said, of a fictional character. But you also won't find another example of a mortal human who's had this kind of impact in any of these areas. There's no competitor to Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to consider where he came from and what kind of power did he leverage. It's amazing. And then there's the third option, which seems like it would be – how many times have you heard someone say, Look, if he really is God, then shouldn't we have had more than just four little obscure gospel authors who write this little story about Jesus in the New Testament? Well, yeah, I think you're right. There should be like a huge, huge ripple effect if he's the stone that was thrown in the water. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out there is a huge ripple effect, but we've just missed it. You know, we haven't, but we did, it wasn't missed in real time. Mm-hmm. But I think at our point, our cultural point today, with all the noise and all the other things you could be focused on, like, I bet you can find more about the top 10 movies on Netflix right now than you can find about the top 10 episodes in the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But but that's the noise we're in. Yeah. And I think yeah, we're just is. missing, we're missing the, the most important person who has ever lived. Amen. And, and, uh, and the point of this is to say demonstrably the most important person, the most influential person, the one who's shaped and changed our world more than anyone else. He never led an army. He never had any political power. He just taught, went around, according to the the, the testimonies we have, healed. Um, he was crucified wrongly, reportedly rose from the dead. They said they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And then they just went out and it changed the entire world. So maybe yeah. you could give us some examples of um, uh, like either medicine or or science and, and the impact of Christianity, of, of Jesus ultimately on those things. Yeah, there's a there's a, one of the things I think we've missed is we've missed that you know our way we see the world ends up either catalyzing or inhibiting our exploit. You hear all this all the time. I, I actually quoted Catherine Farringer in the book. She has had one of the quotes that I've always loved for years. You know that we would be uh, 1,500 years further along in the sciences if 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 Christians hadn't you know held us back and burned our best minds at the stake. 
Right. A common well, that, claim we get online. Yes. Yeah. And that is, there's, you have to be absolutely ignorant of the history of science to say such a thing, because it turns out that no one had a bigger impact. No one's worldview, when taken seriously and pressed into service, does more for the examination of the natural realm than the Christian worldview as established by Jesus. And you'll see this because it's not a mis it's not look, there's no doubting that the scientific revolution, that's not our term as Christians, that's the secular uh, dis description for what happened in the 16th and 17th century in Europe. Every modern discipline known to science was founded in this period of time. And, and, and so these are the fathers of the sciences. And if you look at them, you say, okay, that happened in one place in history at one time. And that was in the 15th, and, 15th 16th, 17th centuries in Europe, in, in Christendom. Now, the, of course, the argument is, well, look, if you're in Europe in the 15th and 16th and 17th century, you're a Christian. Well, yeah, but that's not the point. The point is there's yeah. far more people on the planet Earth on dirt that's not Europe. And there are far, uh, and there are far other—I mean, why didn't this happen amongst non-Christian groups in Asia or in Persia or in other places where high density of people had been for many, many centuries, even had a head start on the European culture? Yeah. Why didn't it happen there? It didn't happen there because there's something about the Christian worldview. But people of the book who are highly committed to education, right? Because Jesus doesn't say go out and make converts. Go out and make disciples, teaching mm -hmm. them, oh, really? I'm going to have to teach somebody? Well, what if these people don't read? Well, I'm going to teach them how to read first. Well, what if they don't even have an alphabet? I'm going to get to create an alphabet first before I can teach them to read. Well, That's suddenly right. you're into this long-term committed teaching relationship with cultures just so you can make disciples. Well, that ends up blossoming into the history of modern education. And then from the first three modern universities, which are in, in Bologna and Paris and Oxford, all founded by Christ followers, come another two dozen or so daughter universities that end up being the springboard for the scientific revolution. It's from those daughter universities that most of the scientists in the scientific revolution emerge. Look, there's a rich history of education and of a view of the created order created by a singular, orderly, rational God who is distinct from his creation. Mm -hmm. And and we didn't have a, an aversion you, to study. Can you explain that, that part right there in case anybody misses it? Why is it important that um, that that's... You know, there was a pagan culture around widely outside of Israel, right? There's this pagan culture. Jesus, he, his life influence spreads the theology of scripture and, and a view of the universe that, that changes how they look at the universe itself. Like you, you talked about, it. it's, it's not, it's not a deity over there. That's yeah. something else. And well, what, what's, what the, happened the, there? Well, the pantheon of gods that by the time the Roman Empire, remember the Roman Empire was pretty religiously tolerant as long as the conquered nation would also adopt the Roman gods. Right. Yeah. So they, they understood that, hey, if I leave the culture largely in a place, but now you're in submission to Rome, you yeah. have to so I can pretty much have a great running uh, opportunity to control your region. And and so a lot of it was, well, hey, am I willing to uh, bend my knee to the Roman gods? So at least initially, there's a period of, of, toler of, toler of tolerance. And that what that meant was, is that the Roman pantheon of gods was huge. And the numbers of gods that were, and so when you see illustrations or paintings or depictions of the gods of the mytho mythological gods, you will usually see them in some debaucherous, drunken state, half naked, chasing women. I mean, this is. Un I mean, if you read the mythologies, you'll see that the pagan gods, for the most part, are, don't act a lot differently than fallen humans. They are inclined to steal and lie to you and, and take your stuff and, and and take your wife, your spouse, your husband, whatever it is. 
So they'll kill your spouse and husband. They'll, this is who they were. Very, very uh, disorderly. Now, if, if, if the world around us, if we are simply the creation of a disorderly, disorderly pantheon of gods, then why would we expect we would even have the, the, the kind of rational ability to examine the world? On the other hand, if we are the creation of a single, rational, orderly God who's created the world around us, it should follow certain single, uh, certain orderly, rational principles that are a reflection of his nature. And then we, as part of his creation, ought to be able to be rational. We have good uh, justification for believing we can actually investigate rationally this world and come to certain conclusions. And this distinction is that, that look, if, if, if every lightning bolt is just the product of Zeus getting upset, there's no distinction between Zeus and lightning, between Poseidon and the tides. Well, then there's no point in trying to explain anything, right? Well, why right. we have that? Well, I guess Zeus is always angry. I guess yeah. Poseidon once in a while gets upset. Yeah. How do you uh, predict the other, their emotional states? Yeah. yeah. So this this idea, while it sounds like such a simple idea, it sounds like to the to the, the modern, like well, yeah, but by this time we would have shed it, and we would have already had a different view that would have allowed us to do science. Well, yeah, but what helped you get to where you think you are now is this rich history of thought that didn't come through another funnel point. It came through the funnel point known as Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the difference. You're so far downstream in such diluted waters that you can't taste Jesus anymore. But don't don't but don't, don't don't mistake that for the fact that he isn't the source of the water. Because yeah. it turns out that he is. Now, so I think in the end, what I'm what we miss is we miss that we take for granted a worldview that seems so like we're still like 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 uh, Frank Turek says in his book Stealing from God you know we're we have to sit on God's lap in order to slap him in the face and in some ways uh, we are standing upon a theistic foundation um, that grounds our rationality that grounds the way we see the world um, yet we we want to deny it which by the way is how many times have your kids uh, living in a world that you've created for them, act as though they are completely independent and don't need you. Now, maybe you say, well, mine don't do that because they aren't teenagers yet, but that's coming. So, so the reality of it is, is that <laughs> every we child's still do perfect this. until they, yes. until they become yeah. a teenager. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Junior higher now, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit earlier, but the point is, um, I think we have a tendency to do that because we are prideful, rebellious people. We've always been that way. And we have a tendency to take things for granted from, from its source. Is that we want to think that we're the source of everything. Um, so I think that's what's happening here in some ways. But that is something we've missed, is we've missed the connection that a, uh, a worldview that, number one, elevates the rational, that, that has a high regard for the material world, does not see it as so repulsive or so secondary to an immaterial world that it's not worth examining. That's another huge shift in thinking also. Um, and also did not... It, it, Jesus didn't just come by... The did you notice there's a way this could have happened? Jesus could have healed by just passing by people and from a distance saying something. Of course, he did that on occasion, but he touched the lepers. He he held the people who were demon possessed. He he had no problem with the physical contact with people, and his followers embraced that idea quickly. Yeah. And the monasteries were replete with people who would get their hands on things, touch things. They were yeah. they were farming. They were feeding the poor. They were healing the sick by having contact. They did not see the material world as unworthy of their investigation. Mm -hmm. Much of the ancients did, and that also inhibit. That meant that, that, that you know science before it was called science was called natural philosophy, right? Because people were willing to think about these concepts, but really never got their hands in it and did experiments that could confirm what their thoughts were. 
that was part of the rich tradition that comes out of Christendom as well. Now, you also uh, talk about the correlation between um, where Christianity grows freely, uh, scientific advancement is, is follows. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, I was concerned, I am concerned about it now. Uh, I am concerned that we are in a culture right now in which if you were to look at most scientists in academia, for example, right, um, and you'll talk, you can talk to people uh, like James Tour. Uh, the nanochemist, uh, you know, or or or, 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 or Behe, and talk to these folks and say, you know, Michael, hey, what what what's it like? And that are you surrounded by other believers? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of that has to do with what's happening in the academy more than whether or not the worldview is what initiates this type of uh, exploration or whether this worldview can ground it properly, right? Yeah. So I, I think that what I worry about is that are we now? I I, I worry that we're getting at a point where everything has been so politicized that for political reasons, we want to reject even things that are good, that are centered in a history from Christianity, but we think now they've been politicized for the side we don't like, so therefore, we're not gonna encourage our kids to, to get involved in that. We're not gonna say anything positive about the, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're talking negatively about the sciences all the time now in front of your kids, don't be surprised if they don't enter the sciences. Right, or yeah. if they enter the sciences, but they feel like they have to reject your worldview to do it. Yeah, um, we, we have to really understand, and this is what we're missing it. We're missing it if we think that, that there's no connection between faith and science, that there never has been, there never can be, and they're irreconcilable. So therefore, and then, by the way, they've weaponized that thing against us anyway, so please do not get, but that's what the enemy uses. The enemy is using science. Right. Okay, if we start taking right. that view. Oh, man. Um, that, that's you, like when, you know, uh, when people claim, for, and forgive me for this sidetrack, but that's when people claim that, like, um, say Christmas is, is pagan. <laughs> You're like... And, and you're like, well, that's not actually factually true, but because you believe that, you're sort of handing it over to others as a weapon against Christianity or, yeah. and when instead of using it for what it is. But, um, you know, I've, I've talked to people about, tried to talk about the philosophy of science and that there's a there's a Christian worldview that grounds science well and is and it, it in society, it promotes science practically. Um, and I've had people respond, there is no such thing as a worldview. Uh, in association with science, there is no such. Th I said, well, yeah, it's it's the philosophy of science, and then the response is online. There is no such thing as a philosophy of science. You're such an idiot, you know. <laughs> and and yeah. I'm like, and I just think they don't know. <laughs> they don't. They don't even yeah. know because, like you said, they take so much for granted. Well, even if you said there is yeah. no such thing as an org as a structured view that guides science, that is a view that you think is guiding science. There's, yeah. it's really hard to step away. From, from views of any uh, practice, of any endeavor, and of, of the world in general. We all hold some lens through which we, we see things and we say, well, no, that's out of bounds based on the presuppositional lens that we're holding. Now, that, that's not, that's just true for everybody. I mean, it's really hard to avoid these kinds of claims about truth. Right. Um, now, what we were, all we're saying is, is that, that, that you have to, all of us would have to be at least open to the idea that we have to guard ourselves from presuppositions that could keep us from truth. That's it. I mean, look, in every jury selection, that's the first thing we're doing in the voir dire process is we are simply asking uh, this set of 75 jurors, we're only going to pick, let's say, 16, you know, 12 for the box and four alternates. Okay, we have 75 or 100 to pick from. What, what's, what, how are we making our choices? For the most part, we're simply eliminating people with presuppositional biases in one direction or the other. 
either for or against us because the defensive team is doing the same thing. Yeah. So so why are we doing that? Because we know that that one, it's why we call these presuppositional. They start. You can't get off the track. You can't get off the starting line if you hold a bias that inhibits your the way you're going to run. So so we have to, that's the first thing you have to, that's why the first thing I wrote in a book called Cold Case Christianity is you start your investigation with the first tool in your detective bag, which is don't be a know-it-all. Don't think I know who did this before I actually discover who did this. Yeah. Um, and this is why I think, you know, to say, for example, that anything supernatural is automatically, uh, uh, the interaction of a divine being is, is, is just rotely out of bounds. I mean, don't I want the data to kind of guide me to make that decision? I've already decided right. that, that of all the causes possible for anything, there are certain causes I would never consider. Right. Well, I'm not suggesting that those are going to be the causes you discover. Maybe they won't be. But but why wouldn't you leave them in the palette of possibilities until you determine which is more reasonable? I mean, I consider everything. People say, well, you never considered a ghost or a divine being in any of your homicide investigations. Well, look, you know why? Because it turns out that really quickly you get there and you realize that every, all the data points to something else. Right. Uh, I, I never got to a point where I was like, wow, the only explanation for this is something supernatural. Mm-hmm. Although the most popular investigative shows on TV are people who find <laughs> themselves in positions where they think there is the most reasonable inference, right? And by the way, what gets me is how many of the non-believers in our world love those shows? Yeah. It's not that there's God as the super. It's this other. I was telling somebody, you know, here in California, in this crazy housing market we're in, if you get killed in your house, uh, you have to disclose that to the realtor. Yeah, well, someone else that. does because you're dead. Yeah, you're dead, right? <laughs> so your family's got to disclose. Yeah, he was yeah. killed in the house. Well, mm-hmm. why is that? Because people don't want to buy houses that are have ghosts of of a murderer. Yeah, so all of us are like spooked. There's a point at which all of us default back to some belief in the supernatural, mm-hmm. right? I mean, don't yeah. tell me you don't watch Paranormal the first time it came out. I remember. Oh, I haven't you watched seen it. Yeah. And you, yeah, and we watched. My daughter's <laughs> yeah. a big horror fan, so we were when she was in uh, like high school. If, yeah. if if mom was gone, <laughs> we would watch horror films <laughs> and eat pizza. Okay, so so uh, I'm one of those rare people that just doesn't have any interest whatsoever in yeah, horror. Yeah, no, I get it, but I'm telling you, if you watch those things, uh, yeah. you, I'm not a rational person, but you do like walk into the dark bedroom differently, you yeah. know, than you did before you watch. So in yeah. the end, we all have a sense that this is still inbounds. Oh, but if we're doing science or history, it's out of bounds. Yeah, 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 and it's it's there it's there at the grounding, it's there at the foundation, and um. The uh, so, so what are some of the categories that you said you, you mentioned art, you mentioned science? What are some of the other categories that maybe people wouldn't expect to see Jesus having this outsized impact around the world? Yeah, well, I think that so we, t- we try to do two things in the book, right? What number one, um, show that but I got a bunch of books here on my shelves that, that other people have written, some really good ones, and talks about the impact of Jesus on the world. Okay, great. I needed to know can you reconstruct the story of Jesus from the impact? So you might say, well, yeah, he's he's had a huge impact on modern education. And he certainly has, because that worldview that establishes a teaching um, uh, commission to teach others and disciple them. One of the most ancient texts in all of Christendom after the Gospels is a book called the Didache. Right, it's the teaching of the twelve apostles to the net to the apostles to the nations, and it was a book that was used to catechize um, 
um, young Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, they, there's a, a, a bunch of principles that need to be learned by new Christians, and so that one of the first documents of the ancient church is a teaching manual. Well, this ends up becoming what happens in monasteries, what happens in cathedral schools, and then ultimately from the cathedral right. schools blossoming into the universities. But here's what's interesting. And I started thinking about this many years ago when I first looked at this as as a non-believer um, kind of because I knew even on at UCLA there were a couple of Bible verses on at Royce Hall, so I, I knew that you know it's interesting that there would be this kind of shadow of Christianity in the educational. So how many of these schools I wondered were founded by Christians? Uh, that's something that we miss. I mean, if you look at the number of universities founded by worldviews that had a head start on Jesus. Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroaster, any of the ancient uh, religious views, um, and compare the number of universities that they founded, even Judaism, to the number of universities founded by Christians today. It's like a 10 to 1, all the others combined to Christians. Wow. wow. I think more, more universities, Christian universities, have already fallen away that have probably have been founded yeah. by some of these groups. Yeah, the, the, the more secular kind of either deist or atheist worldview comes in and takes over that's right and says we have to gut the christianity out of that's this right. thing but, but they're not usually starting as many things no that's as, right yeah and, and what's interesting is they want to gut the ideologies out which they do we, I, mean, I think you'd see this i mean the top uh, 75 of the top 100 universities in the world today were founded by christians the top 15 period were all founded by christ followers but yeah. you wouldn't know that if you were to see look at the uh, curriculum in those schools today but right. here's what's interesting um, um, universities love old buildings because that is kind of what, what you know, demonstrates their authority. Gravitas. And, yeah, their gravitas. <laughs> yeah, great way, yeah. Uh, great way to put it. So, so you, they don't tear things down. Well, some of the most ancient buildings on every campus are the first buildings they taught classes in, usually they're chapels. Yeah. And if you go to those buildings, you will still – now, a couple of them have been remodeled, I noticed, doing really? the research. But most have not. And you will find on their surfaces the Bible verses, the pictures of Jesus, the stained glass windows of Jesus. You can reconstruct the store, and I've got a list of what you can know about Jesus from just the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world. So unless you're willing to knock down those old buildings or completely remodel them, mm -hmm. you are stuck with the person of Jesus on the architecture. And if you look at the charters of those schools, so from the charters and the structures, you're stuck with Jesus. He's he's hidden in the nooks and crannies. Now my question is: Can you reconstruct the story of Buddha from Buddhist, from the top fifteen universities in the world? Yeah, not, no, you cannot. Probably not. <laughs> there's no yeah. other historical figure, even if it's somebody who was venerated by. There's a building dedicated to this historical figure in that region, you know, who was important donor to the to the. You still can't reconstruct his narrative. Yeah, but you can on Jesus. If I was just if I knew where to look and I was an alien stepping into the culture. I would go, who is this Jesus guy? Because he seems to pop up in the weirdest places. They don't even seem like they're connected. Like, how is the, the world of music connected to the educational system or the sciences? Yeah. Yet you'll find his fingerprints in all of those places. Oh, I love this. So Psalm 22 has this amazing piece of kind of prophetic statement about Jesus. And it talks about sort of the death and resurrection. And then it talks about how uh, Gentile nations will turn to, to to God, the God of Israel, right? because of what happens here. And it's a description of Jesus's crucifixion. And here we have just actual evidence of worldwide change and transformation and yes. an awareness of Christ. Um, Jesus talks about how the gospel will be preached in all the world. 
And I mean, we have this in the New Testament and then we look at it, it's real life, it's happened. I mean, how hard is it to yeah. be a random Jew in Israel in the first century and talk about how you're going to change the world yes. and then do it after well, you and die? You, <laughs> and you know, and, you, and you're yeah. right. And what's interesting to me, and I am discouraged, you probably saw the same thing I saw was the last week, maybe before you did a talk on this, but the Pew, you know, Pew research comes out about every 10 years and <laughs> reminds us of, of how irrelevant we are as Christians. And so, so they come out, you know, again, and we're still continuing to decline at about, you know, a little bit more than a percentage point a year. And this has been happening now for two decades. So it yeah. doesn't look as bleak, right? So I get it. Uh, and there's a sense in which you feel like, yeah, but see, we can now uh, kind of erase Christianity and and we can return to something else or or, or start something else. It's not it's not necessary. Right. Christianity is not necessary. It may have been a precursor, yeah. but it's not necessary. Yeah, yeah, but it yeah. turns out that we are so myopic that we're looking at the shrinking impact of uh, or the shrinking numbers in churches or of people who will self-identify in this nation and forgetting that Christianity is exploding globally. Yeah. That it, it's there's other nations that are in their infancy of their life and identity as right. Christian. You know, I was listening to a, a podcast uh, called Undeceptions. I don't know if you know that podcast. It's yeah, also yeah, a, good, a good podcast. Um, and and he had a a scholar on uh, a mission scholar on what's happening in China, a scholar. And this guy comes in, or this woman comes in and says, you know, the, the growth of of of, of Christianity in China is is mind boggling, and it's it's hard. They haven't been able to repress it. Um, and they're trying. And they're trying. <laughs> they and, really and are. I think what, and I honestly think there's something to talk to say about that. I think that when we act as the family of God, when we uh, when we stay in that size, I think that our ability to love one another. Uh, you know, I've been part of a mega church. I was on staff in a mega church of you know nearly twenty thousand uh, attendees. I've been on a church of about three fifty. And I pastored my own church of about 50. Mm -hmm. And I realized the church of 50, where we all knew each other by name yeah. and our kids by name, and we're all in the same room. Um, it feels like an extended family. If you look at what your family reunions, they're usually about 50. By the time you get your cousins and your aunts and uncles, it's right around that range. Mm -hmm. And you know all of those people and their own backgrounds and their histories. You get to catch up all the time. When the world watches you love each other like a family— they are transformed by that. And because the churches in places like China are relegated to house sizes, that view of familial love, I think, is really more obvious. It's harder to love people in the thousands. You don't even know them. You could pass back and forth in services. You probably won't even talk to each other. Right. But when you're in a church of 50, you can't get in and out of that room without being known. Yeah. And yeah. that makes a difference, right, in how the sure. world sees us. And I think that's going to continue to explode in China. This scholar was saying that they, the next 30 years, they might have 250 million Christians in China, making it the largest Christian nation on the planet. Yeah. Now, will that ultimately transform the way this government runs? We'll have to wait and see. But I just, I do think in the end, they'll be able to look back a thousand years later and go, wow, you know where we are right now? That all started with a Christian movement in our nation. And I'll bet you by the time we get there, They'll already have taken it for granted, and they'll already have moved in a different direction. That's what right. happens. We get to a point where we take it for granted, and mm -hmm. then we think it's not necessary. Right, yeah. <clears throat> I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, when, when I hear those polls, I, I think there's two ways of interpreting them. One is, uh, first off, you should you should consider the world, not just the U.S. That's kind of weird. But, um, but even when you just look at the U.S., either you're thinking, oh, Christianity's dying in the U.S., or you say, oh, the U.S. is spiritually dying. Like, this is, this is not about the survival of Christianity. Um, 
yeah has, has time not proven that that's not the problem here that's not that's not going to be an issue it's it's about the spiritual survival of mankind because christianity is being cast off and i should say specifically jesus like there's sometimes there's cultural trappings called christianity i'm just talking about yes. really following jesus really knowing and and serving the one whom god sent to die for us uh, that we could know him and be forgiven and <clears throat> what's interesting is hearing those who want to cast off the christian um influence and the jesus influence but they're not aware that there's it's not just incidental influence it's foundational influence that's right, right? and that's some of the things you're, you're bringing out here that i think are very important well, and this is why the subtitle of the book is not, you know, why Christianity still matters. Uh, it's why Jesus still matters. You know, I wanted, I guess as I get a little, you know, I first, I, I dumbed into this. You know, I was um, uh, working as a detective. I had three cases in trial. I was serving as a, like a part-time youth pastor. And I met Sean McDowell. We started doing these immersive trips. You know, I was taking these trips to Berkeley. He wanted to come on one. So we, I went on one with him. Uh, I was teaching students. And he said, you know, you should write a book about this. And uh, that's what ended up prompting me to write Cold Case Christianity. I was not like aiming at that. I was still yeah. working as a detective. I just happened to call and I, I retired a couple of years earlier than I had planned on retiring so I could enter into this world. But I, I can tell you that um, as I get older, I'm less interested in making a rather dry, sterile case for Christianity than I am about preaching the gospel and making Jesus known and especially exposing people to the beauty, um, the, the out ridiculous beauty of Jesus of Nazareth. So wait, um, on that note, what is, what is then your message? You want people to know, you want people to hear what's the thing that's on your heart. I, I think what I want, well, as, as far as, well, in the end, the thing that's on my heart now is that the gospel fixes every kind of stupid you could imagine. So if you think they're stupid in the world, it's cop stupid. Okay. You know, the gospel could fix that. I spend a lot of time working with police officers. Because I know that what ails us, it, it's, it's, the gospel can fix that. Oh, you think it's something in the culture. It's, uh, it's, it's racism in the culture. Well, you, you know what? Uh, the gospel fixes that. Amen. Everything, every form of stupid you can identify, the gospel has a, has a way to answer it in a way that is, 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 is so much more effective. You know, you can develop a 12-step program for alcoholism, right? But you'll find that when they put Jesus back in it, it's not just this bland, uh, supernatural, higher deity. It's far more effective because it turns out you don't, it's not all you doing heavy lifting. Christian, when you become a Christian, you now are in, filled with the Holy Spirit, and now Jesus is doing part of the pull. It's not just all you push. It's Jesus doing part of the pull. That makes a huge difference. And so I think in the end, what I, that's the first message is, number one, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And the other thing that's important is the gospel. <laughs> and if we forget this, we're going to lose yeah. everything. Yeah. But, but in, yeah. in, in, in this effort, in this book, I just want to be able to show that, that Jesus is beautiful and accounts for all the things that you thought were beautiful, even when you were ignoring the source of the beauty. Yeah. And so and this is what we get. So I many people love you know, these issues of, of art or these areas of, of culture, art and music and literature especially, right? And education and science are kind of the ways we learn to love those other three things. Well, all of that has really blossomed because of Jesus, who's the foundation. You know, you can see this, by the way. There's a golden age within Islam that is usually described between like the 7th century to the 13th century. Some people will ground it in different centuries. But the point is, the involvement in the arts and the involvement in a science particularly was out, uh, unbelievable. Um, some of the founders of mathematics discipline, I mean, there's a lot of Islamic involvement in the sciences. And then it 
clicks off. Yeah. Why? And and there's been some work done on it, some, some speculation on it, but I think it's largely a view of the Quran and how it's to be reconciled with the discoveries found in sciences. And we have to be careful as Christians. In other words, we could re we could ruin this. We could we could surrender a bunch of areas for political strategic reasons, which are mis misguided. And so I just that's one of the reasons why I'm also writing a book like this is to say, hey, don't 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 let somebody else write a story that's better than ours. Ours mm -hmm. is grounded in Jesus. Yeah. Don't step away from that. So you can say once upon a time, <laughs> that's all a choice. I don't think that's going to happen anyway, because I think what happens is that God is still God. Jesus is still Jesus. He's still doing his work. And if we want to step away as a, as a nation, he's building it over there. Yeah. Well, and I I'm, honestly, okay, maybe I'm the only guy who's saying this, but I think that as the, as the, the world, the U.S. becomes more and more secularized and functionally atheist, even though there's still a lot of religion, it's it's all um, it feels in the realm of make believe, mm -hmm. and and let's it's the syncretism of hey let's just not argue and let's just kind of try to encourage each other. I think though as this happens that there's a fundamental emptiness to all of it that may lead to a real revival in the future. And so yeah. th this kind of happened in the '60s, right? It's like there was there was a um, secularization and movement towards pagan or Eastern religions that ended up bringing a revival, and um, because there's no living water. There's no living yeah. water in these other sources and people yeah. will feel it. And our culture is, is, is crumbling in, in some ways, right? Certainly people's hearts are crumbling. Certainly people's psyches are crumbling and the, the need for, for Jesus and the grounding that comes there is, is growing. And so I'm, I'm hoping for, I don't care about the politics. I just want to see the, the, the people coming to Christ and knowing that, that Jesus is bigger than all that stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, yeah so, I was, uh, when I was talking to my son about this, and it discourages me, if you look at the Pew data, it's not that people are – atheism and agnosticism are not growing. Right. It's just the unaffiliated that are growing. So what right. he always says, here's what bothers him. It's that it's not that people are leaving Christianity to go – like another destination. They're all becoming Muslim. They're all becoming what Buddhist, whatever it is. It's that they are simply leaving Christianity for nothing, to go nowhere. Yeah. So there does speak something to me a little bit about – the way we live as Christians, right? And 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 I just as as a guy who just fell in the church at the age of thirty five, I get who Jesus is, I get what it is, I, what how beautiful it is to be a Christ follower. I don't get the church yet. I don't understand why we are doing it the way we are doing it most of the time. Hmm. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is not people necessarily, but for example, the, a lot of these folks who leave and they're unaffiliated, they don't leave a, a view that there's a higher power, there is a God, they right. just crafted it in some kind of amorphic way in their own head. <clears throat> but they have not left, they're, they're still spiritual people, they just right. are not calling themselves Christians. Yeah, and I, I, I would venture a guess that for a lot of people it's about authority replacement. So it's, I, I want to replace my submission to these authorities whether they think that that's god more often they think it's their churches their local leaders the ex and their mm -hmm. sort of cultural christianity and they want to be able to fill in the gaps themselves yes and, and so, even if they had a wonderful experience in church they want to leave the authority of this right. god who they didn't get to create in their own mind right now they create a god in their own mind they said no i'm still submitting to i think there's still a god yeah but he right. just matches all of your desires and wants he's you <laughs> You know, right. So you're no longer right. in submission to something outside of you. This this rising individualism is, is a huge part of yeah. what the problem is. Oh, sure. yeah. Like, which one of us out here would, would follow somebody when you'd say to them, so you're going to tell me about God and what to believe and what to do, right? And they go, yeah. Okay, so where's it coming from? And they go, well, I'm just kind of making it up on the spot. Yeah. You yeah. would never follow that guy. 
but right. you're that guy you're following yeah, exactly. yourself down that road it's so scary yeah. but it's gonna it's gonna if, if nothing else it'll be the kids who grow up and see the namby pamby make it up on the spot empty um cliche of religion that they see in their parents who departed from christianity for a more comfortable self-made thing and they're going to go well i know that's kind of lame so <laughs> so i think yeah. that maybe they're maybe those kids are going to are going to fall hard onto jesus i'm hoping well, do you remember um, like 15 yeah. years ago, Mike, there was like this the return, there was like a, a you saw that even within Protestant churches, there was a, a return to kind of more traditional liturgies or some kind of borrowing. Like people wanted to be able to ground what they believe today in the history, the rich history, because they felt like that rich. You can saw a return to some of the people were leaving evangelicalism for Catholicism or for Greek Orthodoxy, right? Like yeah. they were making this shift, and young people would often say, or the, 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 the kind of the studies, who knows if this is even true? But the idea was was well, perhaps they're they're trying to ground. They want to find a certain kind of transcendent uh, permanence or uh, uh, something that's beyond whatever just the flighty things of this generation are. So they find themselves in these more established historic traditions. Anyway. Yeah. Into I I, I need to think more about that. I'm interested in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's going sure. on I've, there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember as a youth pastor, some of my kids were like talking about some one of their friends had become Greek Orthodox, and right. and he said I visited, and it does feel it feels, well, he would say uh, holy, and like right. um, it's so cool because you know this is probably how they've been doing it for thousands of years, right. as we would right. say. To and me, like, I just okay. think I just like oh, so like the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, and I don't mean that as as a mean term. I I mean yes. merely to say that they had the outward representations that gave the sense of holiness that yes. is purely uh, material. But I can tell you, earlier yeah. this year, especially after the Ravi thing, I, I thought for a while, we actually toured and went back and looked at all of the rich traditions in our area, Greek Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, all of that. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to, to be in a place where the pastor has no social media accounts at all and no book, uh, no, you know, not writing songs for, uh, you know, for the Christian music industry. Um, you know, there's no worship leaders who are looking for a record contract. Mm -hmm. uh, just, just an ancient group of people who are in submission to something that doesn't in the least way highlight them or feature them or elevate them in any way. Now, the problem, of course, is every time I go to those places, I cannot get comfortable theologically. So I'm like, ah, bummer. But I think that the aspect of, hey, you know what, I'm just the local parish whatever bishop i'm nobody important like i've got no like nobody you know i'm like this is very an ancient view it's a pre-social media view of what it is to be an influencer in the church yeah and i think ah oh, there's something attractive about that to me am i just yeah. getting you know those commercials I, I, well I, the... I i i think all this stuff's interesting here's here's what i do in my head i hear it all and i go if a if if the if the apostle paul walked into a, a church today that we think is ancient yes. would he go I recognize that, or we go. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Oh, listen, I and totally I think am with you. More that, often yeah. than not, I think they would go. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yes, oh, I totally agree. I, that's what I wonder. Well, this is why. And look, and I, I always say this. That although I've led, I've, I've been in, uh, you know, on staff and mega churches and on staff in house church, and that was a Southern Baptist uh, church plant, but it was a, a cell group. Um, there is no ugly church, and there is no beautiful church. Every church has got something that. It's the church. We are filled with these dirty little things called humans. So you're going to go to any one of these. Don't think you have the model that beats everybody else's, and therefore right. you're right and they're wrong. It's just another way we divide from each other. The, the truth is that um, everything is beautiful, uh, and, and I've been a part of all these churches were messy. 
because yeah. we are messy creatures. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that the key, in, for my two cents, I'm not sure the key is in any of those things, the, the, those differences. I think the keys in um, uh, continuing in the doctrine, right? Yes. In, mm -hmm. in, in prayer, in fel true fellowship, in having, you know, communion together and um, having godly leaders that fit the qualifications that we see you know in first timothy are you uh, suggesting yeah. that the that the issues are theological mike winger yeah come well, you know. on that's a radical idea it's, no you're yes, right it is kind of an old-fashioned idea it might, it might be yes, the oldest is. of the old-fashioned ideas well and you'll notice that a lot of these churches we're seeing that we're even describing that might fit within one of these categories uh -huh. if you were if you were to go you go wow what why are they te like, can you imagine what the, i think part of the thing that paul would be scratching his head about is like how did you get from where we started to this view of god you know? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, we, uh, we need work. We need work and neither of us has the corner of the market on how that has to happen. <laughs> well, I, I know I'm not smart enough to yeah. suggest I wouldn't even know yeah. how to start that process, but yeah, but, but we um, think about it. But your book is a person of interest and this, it, it, sh it should, in my mind, okay. When I read the title, what I'm thinking is it's telling you, Hey, you should be interested. <laughs> That's right. You should be interested in Jesus. And even if you're not a Christian, it's worth it. it just like you would think, hey, there's got to be some value in reading the greats. Well, there is yeah. no greater great than Jesus. Please That's read right. the Gospels. Please read them and yep. think about it. And don't have your um, cartoony version of Jesus there. There's there's a real Jesus who's changed the entire world fundamentally in so many ways. And just go discover him right there in the text of Scripture. That's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. Oh, there's a link below if anybody wants to get uh, his book. It's available there. You guys can check it out. I appreciate having you here. And um, I, you guys, announcement for anybody to know, I'm not going to be doing another live stream until January, the first Friday in January. That's it for 2021. Oh, this is awesome. I get to be your last live stream for 2021. You're the last. You're the Dude, last I, feel, one. I feel even more special. I'm going to actually put that on my social media when I uh, talk That's about right. this episode. I just, I quit for the year after interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, it was so bad. You thought about not even, I'm never going to, at least for, for this year, we're done. We're done. Yeah, I get we're it. done. I get That's it. it. That's it. And, and, and for that, I, I, I now sign off. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you. Yeah. Hey, 